2: Hi everyone and welcome to season two of Racing Lives. This is the first episode and I'm so excited to be back. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzlot and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know and what a lineup of ladies have I got for you this season. I am so excited and we're starting with an amazing, amazing guest. I cannot wait for you to hear her. Each week, as ever, brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. The essential message which I always try to convey to anyone listening with a view to one day working in motorsport is that it is incredibly rewarding. It's every bit as amazing as it looks, but it requires huge dedication, hours and hours of work, and as the cliche goes, blood, sweat and tears. I like to be prepared so unsurprisingly I did as much research on my guest as possible and the more I found the more I came to realise that she is the epitome of that very message. Her career in motorsport so far has been fantastic thanks to her tremendous work ethic and fighting spirit but it has also required every waking hour of every day, every ounce of energy and it seems at times so much of her heart. I cannot wait to hear my guest's thoughts on this. I suspect she'll tell me that I'm wrong to praise her so much, though I hope she realises that she's proven this right so many times already. My guest today is the incredible Claire Williams.
1: Oh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I got tingles. <laughs> yeah. Um But you know, you're quite right. I hate hearing stuff like that about me because, and I do... You know, it's funny because obviously I haven't been in F1 now for a good couple of months. And when I'm on my occasional walks and I'm running or whatever, and I think back that I did that and I'm like, my God, did I really run a Formula One team? Even just a short space, you know, afterwards. And I think, my God, did I do that? Did I go through that? You know, bloody hell. And it's really when you step back from it and you have that time to reflect, it's, fascinating how you think about it and I think to myself oh my god most of the kind of stuff I'm feeling now is embarrassment it's like oh did I do that Did people just think I was you know an idiot did I have any right to be in the role that I was in how you know all that kind of stuff you think oh dear so it's actually quite nice
2: that you've just introed with that already I appreciate it giving me
1: a bit more self-esteem back
2: (laughs) I mean, I, I just say as it is, because I've not been involved in actually, I've not been involved with the team at all whilst you've been running it. So I've been from a very privileged position, been able to see what you're up to. And well, I, yeah, that's exactly what I think. I think you gave it everything and you did really well.
1: Thanks. I did, you know, I, um, I gave it my all. I couldn't, I don't think I could have given it any more. But towards the end, you know, and, and when it was really difficult and, you know, last year and even the kind of two years prior to that when it was really tough you I almost kind of thrived in those periods because it was a challenge for me wanting to see it through. And I'm, I'm nothing if not stubborn. You can ask me, my parents, anyone that knows me, I never give up, but maybe, maybe I should have done. I don't know. And it's things like that now that I'm questioning, but I do think, you know, what I went through for those eight years that I ran it for the, you know, how many years prior to that, that I was working in the team Formula One does give you this incredible sense of resilience that, you don't realise that you're building up until you probably leave. Um, and, you know, whatever role you're in, you're building it up because it's a really, really tough sport.
2: And actually, although I'd love to just get straight in there and talk about all that through, I kind of want to rewind a little bit because the first question I normally ask my guests, and I really want to ask you this one, is when and where did your racing life begin?
1: Well, to what you define as racing life, because obviously I was born into like, the Williams family. So you could say my racing life you know, started from, you know, the minute I was born, uh, you know, and because I think we were so, as a family, so entwined in our team, you know, my dad never left his work at the office, always came home, you know, from a very early age, I was surrounded by people from Formula One, you know, if they came to the house, or if I went to a race, not that we were ever taken to a race that often, we, we were kind of kept in the background. But you know, our kind of life was quite embroiled in that. So I think my exposure started from obviously from a very young age. And then as you know, time progressed, I dipped in and out, you know, when I was nine or 10, 13, 14, I wasn't really that interested, but I still did quite a lot of work at Williams, you know, when mum was bored of us, you know, in the week or wanted a, not bored of us, but she wanted a bit of a break. She would, you know, tell my dad, you're taking the kids to the factory. If that's where you're going today and you can have them. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at the factories, that we had when we were little I started working in the travel office when I was about 14 15 and I loved it and you know so my racing career I suppose has been my whole life and I've been I consider myself enormously lucky and and privileged to to call
2: that my childhood I suppose what's your earliest memory of it have you got like a, a moment where you're aware it was motorsport around you
1: yeah I think it was probably going to Zandvoort when we used to race back in Holland god and my dad, as I said, you know, dad did not take us to the races. We used to get to go to the Sunday of the British Grand Prix and that was it. And then for some bizarre reason, um, he allowed mum to take Jonathan, my older brother and me to Zandvoort, I think for maybe two years in a row when we were racing there. And so being there and, but I don't remember being at the racetrack. I be, remember being at the beach and I think Nigel Mansell coming along and taking us on the dodgems and going and buying little mini clogs and stuff like that. Um, but being so being kind of
2: there but not there. That's brilliant. I'm freaking I mean I know that was your life and that's how you grew up, but Nigel Mansell taking you to the Dodgums. I know. we had a, we had quite a lot of that,
1: you know, Jacques Lefitte's my my younger brother's um godfather. Most most people won't know who Jacques Lafitte was, but he drove for us you know back in the 80s, I think it was. And you know, my my brother's christening Jack, who was he was a real funny man. He was a real prankster. You know, he brought a bird into the church and caused absolute chaos. And then, so which really upset my mother. as you can imagine, this quite formal christening ceremony in England. And then on the way home, Jack decided that he wanted to drive my bro- older brother and me home. So my parents, a bit reluctant, went all right. Then Jack drove like a total nutter home. We were about seven and eight, and Jack had one foot out the window while driving, and then decided to overtake my parents. Uh, with one foot out the window, one arm waving at them down a country road. (laughs) So this is the kind of world, you know, stories that I get to tell now and I'll get to tell my children and my grandchildren. And it it, it is, as I keep saying, it's a real
2: privilege. It is, isn't it? It's just, I mean, it's what people are listening in for, actually. It's the stuff of dreams. It's what they dream of joining. So I'm glad it's every good as it should be. Um, I always like to ask this question, but given your family background, it feels even more touching. Do you feel like you chose motorsport or did it choose you?
1: Oh, good question. Um, I think it probably chose me. I knew from a very early age that my parents didn't want any of us going into the family firm, so to speak. Um, they made that really clear this was not a typical kind of generational family business that would be taken over by one of us at all we would made you know it was made very obvious to us that we had to go off and you know do something else and make our own way in the world and I was really fine with that but you know I went to an all-girls catholic boarding school in the 80s and you weren't really educated in those days as a as a girl to to really have a proper career you know we just weren't you know, my my ambition was to be a good wife and a good, good mother when I was in my teens. And really, that's all I wanted to do. I don't know why. I, I wasn't unfortunately lucky in that I had a vocation to medicine or to you know the, the legal world. Um, a lot of my friends did. Unfortunately, I didn't. I wasn't smart enough. And so Formula One really, I think, chose me because when I left, even at university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just went and studied politics. Um, not with a view to you know going having a political career but because it sounded interesting (laughs) and when I left university my dad put me in touch with the MD of Silverstone Circuit who for some career advice and just at the time he had a vacancy in the press office and asked if I wanted to give it a go so it was like all right I'll give it a try and I loved it I fell totally head over heels and you know the rest is
2: history I suppose. It makes sense to me though that you grew up kind of thinking being a mum and being a, a wife was you know something to aspire to your mum was formidable you know she would have shown you everything that she did that like that's that was a big deal
1: yeah my mum is or was really a big deal unfortunately she she passed away nearly eight years ago now and but she was inspirational um and I think you know I think people still remember her in the paddock she was a big figure even though she wasn't there a whole lot she is well just stuck to Silverstone pretty much her whole life but When she was there, she had a big, big impact. And behind the scenes as well, she had an impact um, on Williams. And you know, certainly from my perspective, I feel that if it weren't for mum, Williams may not be around because she was the one that bankrolled it. And when my dad was, you know, doing his running his race team out of out of a phone box because the bailiffs kept calling and you know, stuff like that. So, you know, she was a real she was, you know, the woman behind the man, I think, and and a real inspiration
2: to me. And I know so many people. Definitely. And I I have to tell you personally, I love I love the fact that you have a logo for her and that it's on the cars. I love it.
1: Yeah, that was um, really special. We wanted to do that when she died um, and, and run it on the cars. And actually, it was very difficult when I left because I wanted to take it with me. You know, Obviously, everyone knows that we run the Senna logo um, on the car and that will remain forever. Unfortunately, you know, Doralton, they're very comfortable with that. But it didn't feel right leaving. You know, It was almost like leaving mum there when the family aren't there and that didn't feel right to me so actually it was Sophie that I asked um to be in charge of removing the logos from the car I didn't want to make a big deal I just wanted her to have them removed um for the next race and then when I was leaving on that weekend one of our mechanics um asked me if we could keep it he said I've heard that um you want to I'm going to get really upset now but he said I, I've heard you want to remove it and I understand but I know for me and for so many people in the team, even though I didn't know your mom, and I know you know a lot of other people didn't know your mom, but it means an awful lot to us. And having that logo on our car is special for us. And we race for your family, and we'd like to keep it. And so I said, okay, you can keep it. And so
2: she's still there. So she's keeping, still keeping an eye on um, our little racing team. I love it. And I've just understood the significance of your parting gift. You were given a front wing.
1: Yeah, I was given a problem. Yeah, actually, I hadn't put that together really. Now, I, yeah, no, yeah, I was given a lovely, which I treasure. I, I couldn't, I was so spoilt that weekend. It was probably one of the best weekends of my entire life, even though it was one of the worst. The team just I, I blew me away. They really did.
2: I have to say, I watched, in preparation for our chat today, I watched um, the Formula One coverage of your last day. They did a video, which I didn't have time to watch during the season, as you can, I'm sure. Um, I I cried. I completely <laughs> cried. You got me. Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Quite an emotional weekend. And I was pretty good. I, I held the tears back, um, at least publicly anyway, but you know, privately it have been a different story. But until Sunday night when we had our party and then it was like, oh, I think I shed a few tears when the front wing, they really got me. And all the TVs as well, all the TV crews were really trying to get me. It was like, David, I'm not doing it. I'm not crying on national television. You know, David Coulthard on Channel 4 and stuff. It's like, don't, just don't.
2: Because I think if I'd have started, i never would have stopped that it gets too easy then the, the, the tear ducts are open I also love can I just say, I love the fact that you left officially you know and efficiently and then with the tvs following you and then snug back into the paddock <laughs> yeah that was quite weird because they were all following me and it was I wasn't
1: expecting that I genuinely when we made the announcement I thought people would just go okay fine you know and I'd do a few interviews a few tvs would be interested and that would be it But what happened was really quite extraordinary. And I suppose, you know, that's it's right, I suppose, with what Williams have contributed. But, you know, mostly what my dad has contributed to Formula One, not just to the team, but to the sport as a whole. I suppose it should have been done in that way, had that reaction. But yeah, leaving the paddock with a load of TV crews, knowing that I was coming back an hour or two later, it was a bit, I felt a bit um, disingenuous, I suppose. (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was absolutely the right thing to do. (laughs) just a good job that they didn't follow me coming out at four in the morning because <laughs> that wasn't pretty
2: <laughs> I think one of the reasons I got so tearful by the way is because I can I feel up to a point I can completely relate with you I mean you know press officer yeah with you done it head of comms yep get in there kind of around that area marketing commercial okay, I find that you know but then then joining the board and then becoming deputy team principal, you went so much further you Know what was it like? What was the job like as well? Because not that many people actually know what a team principal has to do, really.
1: That's what I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I kind of pinched myself because eight years does sound like a long time, and that's how long I was in the role for. But you know, when you and actually from on the board, I joined the board in 2011 or 2012, I can't remember now, but that's you know nearly 10 years. Uh, eight. Sorry, I can't even count. Anyway, when I now think back on it, it feels like it went in literally a heartbeat. But I do pinch myself that I was ever given that role. It's like, really? I, you know, I was the press officer. I started as a junior press officer and I work, managed to work my way up. But I always you know, I always just got on with doing what anyone asked me to do. You know, I was asked to be the junior press officer. I got on and I did it and I loved it. If I was still there as a junior press officer, I would still love it and I would just be getting on with it. You know, obviously things didn't conspire that way and I just ended up taking you know step up after step up and I think one of the big reasons obviously that I was put in that DTP role was because of my name and people liked the idea of you know a Williams continuing when Frank couldn't I think the fact that I was a woman I think people some people liked the idea of they thought that it would bring something different it could be more it could bring some more power to the team having a woman in that role so, but you know, being a TP, it's it's an extraordinary life. But I think any job in Formula One is it does take so much out of you. And again, once you actually stop doing it, you don't realize what you have done, what you have achieved, what you've asked even your you know your, your, what you're asking yourself mentally to do, what you're asking you know of yourself physically, because it's actually you know as much as your you know it's a, it's a desk job. At the end of the day, it's not like you're a mechanic or whatever. But it's physically exhausting running a Formula One team. Planes here and there, you're not just on planes going to the racetrack, you're going to meetings in between and, you know, God knows where, what what country you're going to next. You know, I've got, I've kept diaries, obviously, of all my time and you you can flick through them now, you know. And, you know, I have, I always wrote down every meeting, um, every job that I had to do for the whole, you know, well, certainly for my DTP years, eight years, but also for five years prior to that as well. And I flick through them. And you're like, my God, you know, I mean the diary, every page, it's a big diary, and it's full, you know, full of job after job after job. And you just think, Jesus, you know, that's that's a lot. You know, there's no downtime, there's no lunch break, there's you know, hardly any time to go to the bathroom in the day. But so you're just you're just doing so much. One minute you can be dealing with a driver issue that you've got who wants to be paid more money or you know, his seat's a problem or you've got the guys downstairs saying, you know, they can't get this bolt from stores and why can't we order that bolt? You know, I haven't got a credit card to order it from or all these different things. And certainly in the last um, period where I was working at Williams doing a lot of this next gen cultural transformation stuff, I was a strong believer that changing our culture at Williams was important to generating that success. For me, that was where I could input as much as the commercial and marketing side, I couldn't do anything on the technical side, so trying to build on you know that cultural piece was really important to me. So you know, looking at diversity and making sure that we had strong representation of females within um, the team was something that I was working on. So you know, the the role of a TP is just so, from one minute to the next, you're just you're having to like do someone to put a bit of paper in front of you about this, and then you know you've got to then flick a switch and turn and think about you know, something completely different and have that ability to just mentally juggle everything all at the same time. But it's it's a wonderful. I loved it. You know, I miss it extraordinarily. So it was it was so brilliant. Um, and I wish I could have continued doing it.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: One thing I wanted to check, actually, because you literally you did grow up in the paddock. I think you're one of the few people in the whole world that can say that. Did people change the way they behave as you became TP or DTP? No, not really. Um, and I really like that. And
1: actually, somebody made a comment, a journalist made a comment, when I became DTP and I started running the team, and you know obviously that was a big transition for me you know i was you know, i was i was, had been a boss in marketing and, and commercial and and comms and stuff but um i was suddenly a boss of everybody and people that i hadn't been a boss of previously so that was quite difficult but i did have what was really nice was that um suddenly for me people didn't treat me any differently and i think that was because i'd grown up in the team so many people knew me and had known in me for either their whole time there or I'd known them for my whole time there. And I didn't run things in a in a kind of draconian way. Mine was a very I felt anyway, a very collegiate, collaborative approach with everybody. No, and it was certainly an approach that my dad had instilled in me that nobody is more important than than anyone else. Of course we had hierarchies and you have to have that in an organisation to make it function properly. But on a deeper level, a subconscious level, it was all of us in it together. And we all just rolled our sleeves up together. But people said to me that I hadn't changed. And that was meant a lot to me. Because I or maybe I should have changed. I don't know. But it was important to me that and I read that as I hadn't just become tyrannical and power happy and or whatever. It was just I was, again, just doing a different job. I was still the same person. Talk to me about the D in your title, because I know it means a lot to you. Obviously, people that run Formula One teams are team principals, and my dad has always carried that title, and he was very reluctant to give it up. Quite rightly so, he wasn't operating the business day to day. That was my job, and had been since 2013 when I took over. But you know, and in the beginning, I was a bit—I was kind of like, oh, I really want the TP title. You know, I'm doing the job; I feel I should be called it. But my dad, I, I, and I kind of got frustrated for a period. There was a period where I was a bit like, oh, I just want it, and then. Actually, it became really important to me that I didn't have it um, because my dad's team principal and I felt for, you know, as long as he was still alive, then he should always carry that title. He was our team principal. He was still there. He was still at the factory. He was still our leader, our boss, who we all aspired to and who, why we were all there. You know, calling him anything else wouldn't have felt right. And so for me, being his deputy was something that I got quickly comfortable with. In the beginning, I was incredibly proud and I was totally happy with it. As I said, I had a small middle bit where I was a bit like, I want it. And then it was like, "You know, no, I will never take the team principal title because that's my dad's. And I think if things had been different and, you know, maybe dad had passed away and I, sorry, morbid to talk about. But if dad had passed away and I still was running the team, I don't think I would have ever taken the TP title. I think it would have gone with my dad.
2: I like that a lot. I think it just shows so much. I just I don't know just respect respect for the team
1: that's so important I think from my perspective that team you know I always felt like I was in a kind of caretaker role and I know the critics will go well you didn't go do a very good job of that did you but you know I felt I very much felt that these teams they're not they're not anybody's certainly Williams is my dad and Patrick's team and, you know, Patrick made his decision to retire Dad operation. He wasn't involved anymore. And it was my job just to carry it through. I didn't feel like it was suddenly mine. I owned it. It was ours. You know, it was everybody in the teams. Uh, it was still my dad and Patrick's, but it was the teams, the 700 people in it. It was our job to keep carrying it for Frank and Patrick and to do our best.
2: I want to ask you about um, competition, because I always like to joke to say that, you know, even at press officer level, you're still looking left and right to see who sends out the press release and who's lost
1: Across the paddock, there is the most extraordinary level of competition. I've always said that and I actually use it in a lot of my speeches that I made to like in, in presentations, for in pitches for, for money. Was you know, Formula One is the most competitive sport in the world. Even, you know, it's not just competing on the race track that we all get, you know, we all fight about. But it's you know, down to the press officers who gets a press release out first or who's written the best press release or the funniest press release or whatever. Formula One is just riddled with it. But that's what it should be.
2: How did that translate when you became, when you, you know, acquired your last role at the team? You know, do you feel competition when you're the team principal? I mean, obviously, when you're sat on the pit wall, that's a very physical moment anyway. But just going through your meetings, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to be better than Toto.
1: Yeah, you do. And I remember there was a team principal kind of competition in um, readers had voted for their best favourite team principal, I think 14 or 15. I think now I'd probably be right down the pecking order. So thank God they haven't done it for a few years. But in the early days, I was voted as the readers' second favourite behind Toto. I was furious for days, absolutely livid that I hadn't won it. (laughs) I don't know why I would have expected to win it. I'm still pissed off. Like I'm sure every other team principal was every team principal you have to be have such competitive fire in your stomach to to run a Formula One team because it takes so much out of you if you don't have it if you don't care if you don't care that your driver is the best that your car is the best that your head of aero is the best that your head of comms is the best in the paddock then you've got no business running a Formula One team because it's all about competition at every single level you know even down to who says the best stuff in the team principal meetings, you know, you can see it. There's this big competition to who can say the cleverest thing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all about competition. Who's got, who's chosen the best team kit? Ah, it's, it's everything. Who sat in the best seat in
2: the plane home from the race? It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> who turned up at the correct time at the airport to make sure that you can buy the best seats?
1: Yeah, who leaves the paddock last? Which is, it was Gunther left before me tonight. You know, I'm in first. Yes. (laughs) You know, it's pathetic. It's ridiculous.
2: (laughs) It's so at the core of everything we do. Can you please tell me what the exact moment you realise that motorsport is not glamorous at all? When you start working in it, I think
1: it pretty quickly becomes pretty clear that you know it's not but that's not to say it's not special it's not wonderful I think people think it's glamorous but the hard work isn't but what we do is a privilege and I keep, I'm talking in the present tense but everyone will understand that and even like going to China for example which is one of the races you know it was always wet it was always cold the paddock's huge it was you know our hotel was next to a pig abattoir you know things like that it's not that you know, it's not how people envisage Formula One. But even so, that is still incredible to know that you're going to Shanghai and you're going to the race track. There is this incredible, you know, circuit built around lily pads and all the rest of it. So it might not be, some of it might not be glamorous, like when you're, you know, checking through the paddock, actually going through like mud, signing autographs. I used to do that quite a lot in a few races last year that were really, met, really um, wet. And the fans are all lined up and, you you know, walking down and you want to sign everyone's stuff. And then you're there and then you've got to cross. Last year, I had to cross some mud pool to get to the last five people who were behind this gate thing. And I didn't want to miss them out just because there was mud there. So I literally waded through this like cesspit of mud in my team kit. I was covered in the stuff. And they literally, when I got over to the other side, they said no other team principal has been down here because they wouldn't cross through the mud. And again, I was like, yes. I came down here but you know that that stuff's not that stuff's not glamorous is it there's a lot of that there's a lot of not glamorous stuff in Formula One but equally there's awful you know a lot of good stuff in Formula One and it's a whole lot better
2: than a whole load of other jobs out there isn't it definitely what's your proudest moment apart from crossing the mud to sign the five autographs and did you get to celebrate it probably that first third place that we took in 2014 I'd been
1: DTP for a year and a half prior to that and inherited a team that had finished ninth, 8th and ninth the three years prior to me taking over. And, you know, Williams was really in the doldrums and it was, it was really tough. And we did a lot of stuff to turn things around. And we had an incredible year in 2014 to the point where actually it was getting really tiresome to have to walk all the way down to the podium because our team was, you know, still in P10 or P9 down the paddock you had to walk a mile you know, or it would just get really boring having to apply to all the congratulatory text messages, you know, which is awful. And in the like last years, I'm now like, OK, this is my retribution, isn't it, for, you know, thinking, thinking those awful thoughts um, in 14 and 15. But that was my proudest. When we took P3, we closed it out in Abu Dhabi at the last race. And I've never been more scared going to a race weekend. I can still picture myself sat in my seat on the plane coming into land, and my stomach literally dropping, going, are we going to do this, are we not? And this was the race where I voted in conjunction with a lot of other TPs for the double points, so it was absolutely possible that Ferrari could have taken us. And we got there all weekend, and I was probably white as a sheet. I just wanted to get to the race and to get it over with, it was the most painful race of my life watching. But Valtteri and Felipe took second and third behind, I don't know which Mercedes driver it was, and to see them on the podium and to know that we'd taken it and coming out the back of the garage and, you know, just being with the boys afterwards, knowing that we'd done it was incredible. And one of the nice things anyone said to me before that race, when I was going around wishing everybody luck, you know, they were like, oh, my God, Claire, you know, just calm down. It's fine. And then someone said, Claire, don't worry, we've got this. And, do you know, what they did. And the boys always had it and they always had my back. And, you know, they're the best bunch of, boys and, and you know they made me really proud the team just made me really proud always regardless even you know the good times or the bad times
2: I want to be fair and ask you what your lowest point was and obviously how you recovered it but I want to caveat that because you're really really hard on yourself and so I want your lowest point to not be something that you've done <laughs> and
1: my lowest point was you know not getting the car to testing and that was a team effort. I think it'd be fair to say. But at the end of the day, I'm I was the TP and you know, DTP and and you know all of that shit falls on you when you're the boss. And you know, you have to take the good good with the bad. And so that was the worst time. It was the worst few weeks prior to it, and certainly the week the week prior to supposedly going testing was pretty horrendous. The day before, when we still thought we were going to make it, and then I got the phone call saying it's not, the car is not going on the transporter there. I mean, literally was horrific. And then the aftermath dealing with it. And then really that whole year was pretty bad. Monaco that year, I mean, we couldn't have made more mistakes in Monaco that year. That was, that whole year was a real low point. But 19, as much as we again had a really shitty year, we cleared out the issues and we were able to make start making progress and move forward. And if we hadn't have done that, we would have been in the same position as 18. So people always thought 19 was my worst year, but it was 18.
2: Yeah, you turned a corner by 19, you were like progressing and going back up because it takes time. Yeah, and actually if you look at the times from
1: 2020, you know, if you compare like where we were qualifying at the racetracks in 2020 versus 2019, you know, we were would get, you know, half, one and a half, two seconds that, to to gain that amount of time over the course of one se- one season's development, I don't think anyone's ever done that. You know, that was extraordinary. But people don't see that. They
2: still see finishing 19th and 20th. It's all relative, isn't it? But we know that George was hell-bent on scoring a point. You know, that was he knew he could do it. It was his mission. And he, would just, <laughs> and he really felt like he had the car, he could do it. It was so, oh, what a year. Yeah. What are you? <laughs> I just wanted to end by asking something that obviously people are tuning in for which is advice you know what advice um to get into motorsport which I'm sure you've given lots of times but just to add as well have you been given advice that served you well through your career as well
1: I know the worst bit of advice that I've been given is I really should wear heels in the paddock when I'm working because I'm so short <laughs> which I love <laughs> um now, do you know, the best bit of advice I've been given has always been by my dad and that's to work hard and you'll get your just rewards. And I, I firmly believe it's true. There were so many lessons that I learned in my time in Formula One. You know, I could write a book on the number of lessons that I've learned, that, but you've just got to keep fighting and you, you never give up. And I think that same principle applies if you want to, you know, if you want a career in motorsport, which I couldn't recommend highly enough you know we've talked about it and I think you can hear the passion in both of our voices right when we talk about Formula One and what an incredible world it is to work in for so many reasons the people are incredible everyone has everyone's backs even across the paddock into teams the work itself is so rewarding yeah it's tough yeah it's demanding but it is so rewarding at the end of the day you're all making history you know you work in a sport you're making history week in week out and you're part of something, and that's really special. So I would always advocate, you know, for anyone to take a serious look at Formula One as and you know, particularly for girls that might be looking at it from the outside in, you might not see that many girls, but you know, the camera really only focuses on the cars and the drivers. But there are a lot of women in Formula One, and I think that group of women are very close-knit, they're quite tight, they support each other. But Formula One is a is a you know, general in general terms, I think mean, it's very welcoming to women and women shouldn't be put off by you know seeing so many men because those men certainly for me I don't know and I can't speak for other people but I have never experienced any significant level of discrimination that you know that would put me off working yeah there's banter and stuff like that but None of it, you know, it's banter that you get anywhere and, you know, you should get because it, you know, it, it makes you stronger and you give it back yourself. That's just what we all do, right? You know, the most level of criticism I've had is from, you know, from the outside world that, you know, have never walked a day in my shoes and, you know, you just ignore them. But, you know, just work hard, decide what you want to do, talk to people who work in the sport, build those connections because it is tough to get into. You've got to really not give up, but not be annoying. Uh-huh and you know build your way up from you know the junior formula that's often a really good entry point but if you want to work in formula one there's no reason why you can't there are no barriers you're good at what you do you have every right to work in that school
2: thank you claire just to wrap up i'd like to ask you what are you looking forward to
1: looking forward to lockdown restrictions lifting so i can get on an airplane (laughs) and i've never (laughs) I would say that <laughs> I need to travel. I think, again, once you've been traveling for so many years of your life to not do it is quite freaky. And again, not being in a hotel, you become so institutionalized by airplanes and hotels that when you can't do it, you're like, I keep saying to myself, I just need to stay for a night in a hotel. I, I've got, withdraw- it's like a withdrawal symptom or something. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to lockdown, like everybody is, restricting when it's safe to for it to be so and to, to do a bit of travelling. I want to go away and, you know, have a bit of time on the
2: beat. It sounds perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Claire. It's been it's absolutely been amazing chatting to you. No,
1: it's been lovely. Thank you for having me.
2: That was the amazing Claire Williams. And I have to thank her once again for giving up her precious time to share her stories on this podcast. It was a privilege to chat to her so openly. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform, tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all means so much and I read every message and every mention. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly, should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to make this show, as you can imagine. Can't believe I'm saying this, but thank you very much for listening. We're back. Speak to you next week.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Um